Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production, where people gather. Ladies and gentlemen, Real Paranormal Activity is proud to present Terry's Mysterious Moments. Welcome to Terry's Mysterious Moments, Season 3. Thank you for joining me on this journey into the odd, the weird, the strange. Hope you'll enjoy it. Now, on with the show. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Terry's Mysterious Moments. I am Terry from Texas. Let's jump right in. Have you ever heard about something called a madstone? How about a bezoar? A madstone is a curative thing from a very rural and possibly even superstitious time past, even from the old country, as they might say, in a time where folk remedies were the norm and doctors were few and far between, and many of them were not trusted by the rural and backwood folk, not backward, but backwood folk. The march of progress is sometimes met with stiff resistance at times. There is a story from my hometown's past that I'll relate regarding Madstones, and it might explain a little about them. This is from the Galveston Daily News, November 22nd, 1903, and it starts off with a dateline, week of November 28th, 1903. Mrs. S.C. Woodward of Lexington, Lee County, traveled to Northrop recently to reapply the Madstone, which she has owned for many years and successfully applied to the bites by rabid dogs of nearly 1,000 patients. This stone is of great reputation, having been presented to Mrs. Woodward by a German, who claimed it to be nearly 100 years old and taken from the paunch or stomach of a white elk. Mrs. Woodward, who had already applied the stone to the patient, a married lady who lives near Warda the day before she came here and claimed it was unnecessary to use it again as the stone had adhered to one of the wounds two hours and 40 minutes and to the others about one hour each and thus it had drawn all the poison out. This case is an unmistakable one of a bite by a rabid dog which then The dog died with all the symptoms of hydrophobia, or rabies, the evening or night after he had bitten the lady the last time. He bit other dogs, pigs, chickens, etc., and died, snapping and foaming at the mouth. He showed many other symptoms before dying. The lady seemed satisfied, as the stone did not adhere at all yesterday. 
And again, that was from November 22, 1903, the Galveston Daily News. The Madstone one of the most intriguing artifacts held in the collections of the Sam Houston Memorial Museum is a madstone donated to the museum in 1978. The term madstone refers to its use as a treatment for rabies. But before there were madstones, there were bezoars. Bezoar stones have since ancient times been used as a treatment for fever as well as an antidote for poison. These stones are not really stones. Rather, they are compressed concretions of hair and vegetable matter found in the stomach or intestines of an animal. They come in all sizes and shapes and have been studied over the centuries by men of science eager to understand the source of the believed magical cure or to dispute it. Gaspard Bohin, the Swiss botanist who developed a classification of plants, in 1596 wrote that quote, even today princes and nobles prize it meaning the bezoar very highly and guard it in their treasures among their most precious gems so that the physicians are forced sometimes against their better judgment to employ it as a remedy so great are its virtues that many imitations are made Unquote. The most valuable bezoars are probably the dozen found in the wreck of the Nuestra Señora de Atocha, which sunk in 1622. The Spanish ship was carrying treasures from the New World back to Spain when it sank off the Florida Keys. The museum's bezoar or madstone was not used to protect a royal personage from poison or cure a 16th century Arab from fever, but it certainly does have its own claim to fame. The museum's Madstone's undocumented history begins in Yalabusha County, Mississippi. A young boy named John McPhail took the Madstone from the intestines of an albino deer that he killed there in the 1840s. The Madstone was reportedly used to cure snake bites, insect bites, and rabies in Mississippi before the stone was brought to Houston County, Texas, sometime before the U.S. Civil War. When he joined the Confederate cause, John McPhail carried his Madstone along and was soon known as Madstone McPhail for his treatment of fellow rebel soldiers. According to McPhail family tradition, McPhail was asked to treat Abraham Lincoln's son, Tad, after Tad was bitten by a rabid dog. At the time, McPhail was a prisoner of war near Washington, D.C. John McPhail and his Madstone returned to Houston County after the war, where the McPhail family continued to use the special stone for various sorts of maladies. There seems to be a very strict set of procedures when using a Madstone. The stone must be boiled in sweet milk before being applied to a wound, and it is reported that the stone sticks to the wound until all of the poison has been removed, at which time the stone falls away. The stone must then be boiled in milk again to remove the poison from the stone. 
Madstones have reportedly been found in all types of animals. Early civilizations made use of bezoars found in sheep and goats. But in North America, the most common madstones are found in deer or antelope. One famous Appalachian madstone was described as smooth and red, as large as a man's thumb, with one flat white side. The famous madstone of Vacherie, Louisiana, is described as a black agate. It has been used by the Gravois family for almost 200 years as a cure for bites from cats, skunks, snakes, and spiders. Family History reports that the madstone was given to the Gravois family by a Native American who was cared for in illness by the Gravois family in the early 1800s. Another madstone is the Noel Madstone of Alto, Cherokee County, Texas. Dr. Noel brought the Madstone to Texas from Virginia in 1860. The use of the Madstone continued after Dr. Noel's death by his daughter, Miss Fanny, who documented treatments in the family ledger, such as R.W. Ivy, a prosperous landowner of this county, was in town today en route to Alto in search of the Madstone he having been bitten last night near his home by what he considers a mad dog. In the Moeller family Bible records from 1832 to 1905 is a description of another mad stone brought from Virginia to Texas, measuring one and one-half inches by seven-eighths of an inch. The mad stone had been used on horses as well as people. The stone is light brown and of porous construction. Besides rabies infection, the stone has been used to alleviate pain when any of the children receive bites from ants, bees, or other insects. The description of this stone is a near match for the Madstone located in the Sam Houston Museum. The McPhail Madstone measures one and a half inch in length and seven eighths of an inch across. It is a lightweight, being 0.6 ounces, oval-shaped, honey-colored stone. The McPhail stone is also very smooth, which seems to be a common characteristic of North American madstones. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. A clipping from the Waco Tribune Herald, Waco, Texas, December 7, 1968. On page 8, reads thusly, and in part, Its origin obscure, its value debated. Mysterious Madstone, remedy for mad dog bite or superstition. Two or three generations ago, whenever anybody within a wide area of Central Texas got bit by a dog suspected of having rabies, they headed for the home of Mrs. Angeline Woodward of Lexington, just south of Brockdale. She owned a marvelous object called a madstone, 
believed to have the power of drawing the poison out of the victim of the mad dog bite and save him from a horrible death. Two of Mrs. Woodward's grandsons, Rufus Woodward and Dr. W.C. Woodward, both of Lexington, remember how the people used to come by train and by wagon, sometimes traveling for a couple of days in hopes of reaching the Madstone in time to save a loved one who had been bitten by a mad dog. The Madstone is shaped like a flattened out rock about an inch and three quarters long by an inch wide. It looks much like a piece of limestone and has a pinkish tinge to it. The Woodward Madstone is said to have come from the intestines or the stomach of a white elk. Other Madstones have been reported as coming from the insides of albino deer. Some people say the Madstone was the animal's could. You've seen cows look like they're chewing on something, we call it a could. C-U-D. We're just country that way. Some say the mad stone was the animal's could that somehow hardened in the stone. Others say it is a mass of hair that got into the animal's stomach and cemented itself together in a stone-like ball. Many people had an unshakable faith in the curative power of the mad stone. Others said it was only a superstition. But the Woodwards say they have seen the Madstone applied successfully in hundreds of cases and that they cannot help believing that it does some good. Dr. Woodward practiced dentistry in Houston for many years before coming back to Lexington to operate his ranch. Rufus Woodward also attended dental school and got through three years of it and got up to the point where he had to start practicing on people, then gave it up. He simply said that every time he started working on somebody, he got sick to his stomach. So he came back to Lexington and farmed and was in the feed business for many years. Rufus Woodward owns the Madstone now. And remember, this is 1968. Owns the Madstone now, and his grandmother gave it to him in 1927 before she passed away. The story goes on to describe rabies and its effect and some of the treatments used before an anti-rabies treatment was created by Louis Pasteur and other information. Bezoars as medicine. Remember how Professor Snape explained what a bezoar was in the first Harry Potter movie? A stone from the stomach of a goat that will save a person from most poisons. Well, true enough in that magical realm, but what about us in the muggle world? Snape had it partly right. A bezoar is a lump of hardened, undigested material found in the gastrointestinal tract of deer, antelope, goats, oxen, and llamas. It forms when layers of calcium and magnesium phosphate build up around a small bit of plant fiber or a pebble. Stomach contractions squeeze and smooth it to a roughly round shape. Bezoar comes from padzar, a Persian word that means antidote. These rock-like objects were found in sacrificed animals and believed to be a universal cure for poison as well as leprosy, measles, cholera, and depression. A bezoar could be worn as a charm, ground into a powder and consumed, or dropped into a drink suspected to contain poison. Arabian doctors had been using bezoars since the 8th century 
and brought them into Western medicine in the 12th century as an antidote to arsenic, a favorite poison used to assassinate European nobles. By the 16th century, use of bezoars was widespread among the very rich. They were valued at ten times their weight in gold. Queen Elizabeth I even had a bezoar set in a silver ring. People who couldn't get a real bezoar could opt for a knockoff, just like they do today when they can't really afford the Chanel or the whatever else name brand items they want, they go get a knockoff. Jesuit priests in Goa, Italy, formed shells, silt, amber, resin, and sometimes bits of actual bezoars and crushed gemstones into hardened balls called Goa stones. These were also believed to counteract poison and cure the plague and were fabulously expensive. In 1575, French surgeon Ambroise Paré carried out an experiment to debunk the curative powers of bezoars. A cook in Paré's house was caught stealing silver and sentenced to be hanged. Paré struck a deal. If the cook agreed to be poisoned, he would be given a bezoar immediately. If he lived, he could go free. Unfortunately, the cook died in horrible pain hours later, and Paré had his proof. Please don't take this story as an anti-folk remedy rant. I have heard from those who have been healed during a time of physical illness. Was it because of a folk remedy? I don't know. Some folk remedies make absolutely no sense to a modern mind, even mine. But you know, some of those folk remedies actually used stuff that we now use as pharmacological medicine. I mean, I think it was cherry bark that you could chew and get the effects of aspirin. I think that's right. There's some kind of bark that you could chew and get the effects of aspirin. There's a there's a melon that they serve visitors in Brazil. And I, when I say visitors, I mean from outside of Brazil. They serve them this melon. And it tastes just like Pepto-Bismol. It looks like a honeydew, but it tastes like Pepto-Bismol. And it's because it has the active ingredient that Pepto-Bismol has in it. And it's given to visitors to the area to help settle their stomachs because they're not used to the, the the bugs and things that are in the water. But then we have to look at modern medicines which are being used across the world as for something they weren't intended. They find out that you, you take a certain medicine and it actually has a, an effect on something else you may be suffering from better than it does on the reason you're taking it. Insulin, in my case, is like that. It may help keep my diabetes in check, but it makes me gain weight. And as a diabetic, a goal for me is to lose weight. Do the benefits of insulin outweigh the bad effects of insulin? Sometimes I think the less chemicals that I pump into my body, the better I'll be. But, you know, things happen. This weekend... I went to a UFO event here in San Antonio. It was the first one they've put on 
and they hope to make it a yearly event. It was put together, I believe, by the local MUFON group, M-U-F-O-N, Mutual UFO Network group here in San Antonio, with others joining in. A local paranormal group called Midnight Paranormal was also involved in it. I would love to say that I made some excellent contacts, which I did, and that I got some really good interviews, which I didn't. But the situation didn't lend itself to good recording efforts. It was held in a local mall, and I mean a mall. It was in the common area, between the stores, out where you may find a food court kind of area, benches to sit on, fountains, that kind of thing. So there was a lot of noise around there. They also had quite a few vendors there. And to be honest with you, I have never seen so many Funko Pops, the little vinyl dolls, action figures, whatever you want to call them, in my life. Again, this is not a slam against the event because I enjoyed it. It was interesting. I got some interesting info about UFOs. I learned more about MUFON, like where it, you know where it started, how it got started, who started it. MUFON Incorporated was originally established as the Midwest UFO Network on 31st of May, 1969 in Quincy, Illinois by Alan Utke, Walter Andrus Jr., and John Schusler, and others. Most of MUFON's early members were associated with the Skylook newsletter of Stover, Missouri, and the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization called APRO, formerly of Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin. MUFON was renamed the Mutual UFO Network in 1973 because of its expansion to other states and internationally. In doing a little research, I read that Walter Andrus, his wife and son, were traveling in or around Phoenix, Arizona some time ago, uh, years years and years ago, and they witnessed a daylight sighting of four objects flying in formation across the sky. I think it was four. This began a lifelong effort to research and study UFOs and the sightings thereof. Walter left MUFON in 2000, handing over the reins to his fellow researcher John Schusler. Walter left us in 2015 at the age of 94, but he left behind a legacy of using true reporting and solid researching of UFO sightings. I was able to speak for a time with a man named William Pullen, who is a UFO historian, and had a pretty good chat with him. We talked about several different things, and and I told him about a book I had, and we talked about other things regarding UFOs met a lady named N.K. Cranda, whose business card reads, N.K. Cranda, Experiencer Research and Preservation. And now, I'm not 100% sure what exactly that is, but if I understood what she's telling me, what she was telling me at the time, is that if you've had a experience with UFOs, maybe a close encounter, maybe you know, an abduction story and it it affects you badly, then you can talk to her and she'll talk with you about it and she'll record your story. You know, she'll write down your story or record it or somehow put it into 
the historical record and help you get over feelings of maybe PTSD, as some people have, uh, fear, and other things. I think that's what that means. But I hope to be in contact with her soon to get an interview with her if I can. I talked for a few seconds with a man named Ed Conroy. Now, if you don't have any idea who Ed Conroy is, don't be ashamed, because I didn't either. But Ed Conroy, back, I think it was in like 1986 or so, he wrote a book regarding Whitley Stryber, the man that wrote Communion. And he says that he believes that Whitley Stryber believes that he was abducted by aliens or had he had contact with aliens. So, you know, I have my own opinion on Whitley Stryber, and I just don't know how to think on him, how to believe his story. I don't know. It's it's not my experience, so I can't say yes or no. And that's my that's my thing. I told them. I told a lot of people there while I was talking to them. I said, I've never had an experience with aliens. I've never had a close encounter with a UFO. So my belief in aliens is non-existent because I've never met one. I've never seen one. I've never seen evidence of one except other people's stories. Those are their stories. They're not mine. All in all, it was an interesting time, and I'd go again. Well, that's the show for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. I thank you for being along for the ride, and be with me next week as we come back with another story or another group of stories for Terry's Mysterious Moments. I want to remind you that on Mondays, Aaron Hunter brings you Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast, which is listener stories that Aaron tells, mostly ghost stories. And on Tuesdays, we have Aaron Frail with Aaron's Horror Show, where he reviews horror movies, different books, uh, things that he's written. And on Wednesdays, it's me, Terry's Mysterious Moments, with me, Terry from Texas, where we cover just about anything you can think of. And on alternating Thursdays, or every other Thursday, however you want to look at that, we have Patrick Sean Jones with The Sandman Lullaby. We also have video productions on the first Friday of the month from Full Dark Productions, from The Witching Hour, and from Unexplained Cases. Also remember that you can go to your app store, whether you have an Apple or an Android. You can go to your app store, look for the RPA app. It's a black square with a blue eye right in the middle of it. You can't miss it. And you can download that app, install it into the device you listen to the programs on, and that way you will not have to go looking for the programs. They'll be right there. Do that. It'll be a lot easier for you to get to the stories. That's about it. I hope everybody has a good week. Thanks for being here. Bye-bye.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.